coach at Northwestern, and uh, the head coach at the time, the late Randy Walker, asked him, what is your goal in all this? Why are you here today? And he famously answered, my goal is to take your job someday. And instead of taking that as a threat, Walker said, hey, well, that is a good goal, so I'm going to help you do everything you can to achieve it eventually. Well, it's one thing to take your boss's job through a sort of natural progression of things, hard work year after year, uh, improving your skills, some sort of a mentor, mentorship relationship. Well, it's a completely different thing, though, to take your boss's job by undermining his authority or by gathering a team of people who, you know, when given the moment of mutiny, are going to side with you rather than with him. And such a strategy is bad enough on its own, but when the person you're trying to dispose of is not only your boss, but your own father as well, well, then you've entered into an even more despicable level of treason. And today we're going to consider a passage from the Bible that describes the culmination of just such a conspiracy as Absalom tries to take the throne away from his father, King David. As we'll see, though, uh, David's response is remarkable on a number of levels, and it's especially helpful for us on a day like today, on Father's Day. I was speaking uh, with Pastor Mike a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me about how men at Christ Church normally dislike Father's Day uh, very much because on Mother's Day, when the ladies come, we send them out with you know, some sort of a nice chocolate and uh, you know, some nice thoughts and things like that. But generally, when fathers show up on Father's Day, we give them uh, some sort of a pep talk that says, you know, you've got to get off your lazy behinds and start doing something or your family is going to fall apart. Well, our passage today doesn't lend itself exactly to such a pep talk, but it does lend itself to uh, amazement about fathers, amazement at the potential that a father has to show compassion toward his children. And it's an amazement that may at times manifest itself in those of us who are human fathers, but it ultimately points forward to our Heavenly Father and the compassion that He has for each one of us, His children. As you may know, the Bible rarely describes the physical appearances of its characters. Think about, uh, think about any character you know from the Bible, Think especially about the main character of the entire Bible, Jesus Himself. Right? We really don't know anything about what He looked like. We probably would only recognize Him by the uh, nail-pierced hand, but that's the only way that Thomas recognizes him after the resurrection. Now, having said that, of course, all of us probably have the exact same picture in our minds of what Jesus looked like with the very you know, gentle complexion and the beard and uh, looking very Caucasian for a Middle Eastern man, uh, but that's more thanks to da Vinci than to anything in Scripture. Absalom, though, is one of the notable exceptions to this pattern. His strong physical uh, physique and his handsome good looks and of course his beautiful long flowing hair are all described to us in the Bible. Uh, because it happens so infrequently, anytime we read about a physical descri description in the Bible, we can be pretty sure that it's going to factor into the story somehow. In other words, it's not just there for our uh, reading pleasure. Perhaps the most famous example is uh, the beautiful Rachel and the not-so-beautiful uh, Leah, her sister, the two wives of Jacob. 
And Jacob, of course, prefers the beautiful wife to the not beautiful one, and so he prefers her children to Leah's children. So he ultimately prefers Joseph, and he gets the coat, and that's eventually what leads them into Egypt and into slavery and so on. Well, with Absalom, his good looks also factor into the story. His appearance helps him in his goal of replacing his father as king. It helps him to win the favor of the people. After all, I'm sure none of us can ever think of an example of an incredibly good-looking person who was ever wrong about anything. Well, Absalom's plan is to win the hearts of the people by standing outside of the city gates and intercepting people who came to seek justice from the king, even though the king was perfectly capable of doing that on his own. So Absalom would say, you know, it's really a shame that you've come this far. If only the king had time to hear you, but he doesn't. He doesn't care about you. He's too important for you. But you know who does care? That's right. Good old Absalom. I'm here for you. It's like if you were to go around the corner and put up a hot dog stand outside of a corner bakery over here and say to every potential customer, I'm sorry, there's no tables for you available inside. You're just going to have to settle for this food that I'm going to settle. I'm going to sell you, even though, of course, all the tables are completely open in the restaurant behind you. Well, the Bible says that over time, through this strategy, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And King David eventually hears about this plan to take over the kingdom. So he leaves a few women behind to sort of care for the palace. And he takes everybody else with him. And he ships out uh, straight east out of Jerusalem. And he goes through all those caves and the ravines, all those places that he had become so familiar with decades earlier when he was constantly on the run from uh, King Saul at the time. And eventually he makes it far enough east, uh, past the Jordan River, outside of the Promised Land. And it's time for one last stand, one decisive battle to determine the future of the kingdom. On one side, you have Absalom, youth and vigor and excitement and good looks, and most importantly, lots and lots of troops. And on the other side, you have David, strategy and experience, and most importantly for the biblical authors, a promise from God, a promise to preserve God's anointed king. And we'll be picking up the story this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 18, where David begins organizing a military force that could actually stand a chance against Absalom's troops. And at the beginning of the chapter, he makes two strategic decisions that end up being important for his success. One is to divide up his army into three smaller armies. So Absalom's troops are all condensed into this one big fighting machine. But David would force the battle to happen on multiple fronts simultaneously. Second, and most important, David would have his men strike first, and they would do so in the forest rather than on a sort of flat terrain. And we'll be picking up the story after he makes those decisions here in chapter 18, uh, the second half of verse 4. It says this, The king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, those are the three generals of the three divisions, he commands them, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. 
And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. So we find what must be the strangest pre-battle speech or pre-battle words ever given in history. I mean, you can recall some of the famous pre-battle rituals and speeches that you've heard from uh, from movies or whatever. Think of Braveheart, they can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. Or we find the same thing with a lot of sports teams right before they run out of the field. Uh, The 1990s Chicago Bulls team is probably the most famous, right? What time is it? Game time, hood, and so on. Uh, but here, the, uh, the words that the troops hear before heading off into battle are, make sure you take it easy on my boy, Absalom. Which is not only something that's strange to say, but is actually something strange to do, right? Because normally the army's goal would be to make sure that Absalom is killed. That's the reason that in this chapter, David is going to stay back in the city while his troops head out into battle. Often a king obviously would go out with his uh, go out with his men into battle, but here his troops have managed to convince him that hey, all the enemy is trying to do is to kill you specifically, David. So it doesn't do any, us any good to take you along because if they kill you, then you know they won. It's all over. Of course, by staying back away from the battle, David loses his ability to control the one thing that he really cares about. He can't ensure his son's safety from back, uh, back in the city. All he can do is make this one final plea with the troops. Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. So, into the forest they go. It's the perfect place to feature the experience and the courage of each individual soldier in David's army. And it's the perfect place to exploit the inexperience of Absalom's fighting men. David's warriors had been specializing in guerrilla warfare for years and years now. So the forest is the perfect place to take advantage of those skills. And uh, it's a scene that reminds us a little bit of uh, Treebeard and the others from Lord of the Rings when we read uh, in verse 8. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. But that's all we get on the battle, this huge battle, which claims uh, uh, 20,000 men, according to verse 7, the battle to determine the future of the kingdom of Israel, three verses is all it gets, verse 6, 7, and 8, that's it. And it's a clue, a very big clue, that the battle is not what's most important to the author of the Bible. He wants us to focus on something else, and for that we continue reading in verse 9. Now, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have given you... Ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lift my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, Protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy, and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand, 
and he plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor-bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So it's one of the most famous uh, death scenes in history, probably. Absalom hanging from the great oak tree. Beginning with uh, the first century historian Josephus, the legend has always been that it was his long, beautiful hair that did him in. His long hair that contributed to his handsome appearance that was celebrated by all of Israel. Now, whether a, whether a person's long hair can actually support him while hanging in midair has actually frequently and somewhat humorously uh, been the discussion among commentators on this passage. But regardless of whether he's hanging by his hair alone or whether it's his hair that gets caught and then he grabs on with his hands to avoid the unpleasantries that would come from hanging uh, by your hair alone, regardless of exactly how he's hanging there, the key thing in the passage is that he's hanging. It's a word that's used only one other place in the entire New Testament in a passage that many of you have probably uh, heard. Back in Deuteronomy, where we read that anyone who is hanging on a tree is under God's curse. And that certainly applies to Absalom, right? He's rebelled against God's anointed king. He has, he has all the military advantages he could ask for. He has more troops than David, and he has a mule to ride on, which is something that the normal fighting man would not have had. So he has all these advantages, but still, he can't ultimately escape God's judgment, because God's judgment stands against those who rebel against his anointed king. And it just so happens that judgment does not take long for Absalom to experience since Joab the general comes and uh, finishes him off. David believes that he can squash the rebellion while sparing his beloved rebel son at the same time. But Joab begs to differ. He believes that the only way to end the civil war was to kill Absalom. He thinks, you know, David, your love for your son has gotten in the way of your ability to protect yourself, so I'm going to do it for you by disobeying your last and only instruction as we went out into battle. Now, in accordance with the Jewish law, the body is removed from the tree before a nightfall, but rather than receive the honor of a burial in the sort of royal family tombs, Absalom's body instead is tossed into some pit in the forest, and as expected, once the leader of the rebellion is done away with, all the troops that were following him uh, stop fighting and they return home throughout Israel. So now it's time to deliver the bad news to David. Or is it really good news? I mean, this is not your normal, you know, police knocks on your door and says, are you Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so? I'm sorry, but I have some uh, bad news to tell you. It's not that kind of situation, right? David's kingship has just been saved. His enemies have been defeated. They've all gone back to plowing their fields and tending their flocks. But Joab knows that what normally would have been very happy news for David with a touch of sadness would, in this case, be for David nothing but sadness. And so the question becomes, who's going to risk their neck and tell David that, yes, the kingdom's been saved, but the one thing you actually care about, saving your son, well, he's been killed. And so two contestants for the job are considered. Contestant number one is... Uh, this fellow by the name of Ahimaaz. He's an Israelite 
from a priestly family, and he's been a messenger for a while now. He's delivered good news to David in the past, and he thinks, hey, this is great. I'm going to deliver some more good news to him. And he's very eager to go and tell David the news. He says there in uh, verse 19, let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. But Joab says, yeah, you're crazy, trust me. You don't, you don't want to be the guy that delivers this news to David. I know David better than you do. You don't want to take this job. It's kind of like mom coaching uh, this 16-year-old new driver on how to break the news to dad that you just totaled the family car or something like that. You know, trust me. I know him better than you do. This is how you should handle the situation. Let's send someone else in first to say to sort of take the edge off a little bit, and then you can go and talk to him. And so that's basically uh, Joab's idea. And so we meet contestant number two, a Cushite, in other words, a foreigner. And they figure, well, he doesn't know any better, so let's send him, and he can tell David about it first. And off he goes to break the news to David. Ahimaaz, though, uh, still doesn't quite get it, and so he keeps pestering Joab. Let me go, let me go, I want to tell him, I want to tell him. And finally Joab says, fine, you can go tell him too. And he's thinking, well, the Cushet, the first guy I sent, he's already probably halfway there, so by the time you get there, you know, things will have blown over a little bit, and you won't have to worry about facing the king's anger. But what he wasn't counting on was Ahimez taking a much more strategic route back to town than the Cushite, because the Cushite takes the most direct route through the rugged terrain of the forest, but Ahimez gets out of the forest as quickly as possible and runs down the plain, uh, down the Jordan River, and he takes that way back to town. And so he arrives uh, by David first. And uh, we pick that up there in verse 28. He's just arrived. Ahimez called out to the king, All is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimez answered, I saw a great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, Stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. So the king asked the only question that really matters to him, right? Is my son Absalom safe? Now, Ahimez must have done some thinking during his run by the river because by the time he gets to David, he no, he no longer seems quite so eager to tell him about exactly what happens. And he basically gives him a gibberish answer that tells him absolutely nothing. And so David says, well, it doesn't mean anything. Let's wait for the next guy. And so messenger number two arrives then in verse 31. Then the Cushite arrived and said, My lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has delivered you today from all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, O oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son. So the Cushite, he breaks the news really as gently as he possibly could. He doesn't use Absalom's name, and he never uses the D word. He never says he's dead. But uh, to David, the message is still all too clear. 
Now, we might have hoped for at least a mixed reaction from David, right? Happy about the victory, but sad about Absalom. But instead, we get only grief. David begins to tremble violently. He's inconsolable. He's unable to fathom what has happened. And so all he can do is just repeat a half a dozen times or so, my son, my son, Absalom, my son. Throughout most of the David narrative in the Bible, we see him pretty much as 99% king and 1% father. But here, all of a sudden, the flip side comes out, and we see him as 99% father and 1% king. So much so that uh, in the beginning of the next chapter, Joab has to step up and sort of save his identity as king and tell him, hey, this weeping and wailing is no way for a king to act after so many men have gone out and risked their lives to save your reign. So David has to pull himself together in order to avoid insulting all the men who have been out there fighting for him. Well, it's easy to dismiss Absalom the rebel and to say, hey, this guy is not anything like me. He's a spoiled prince. He's got long, beautiful hair. People are naturally drawn to his good looks and his charisma. That doesn't sound anything like me. I'm just some ordinary person. But the truth is, many of us are a lot like Absalom. We're prideful and self-serving. We're interested in being our own boss. You know, I like to be the king of my own life. Bill Bright, I remember the, uh, the late founder of Campus Crusade, he, he used this phrase often that uh, we like to sit on the throne of our own hearts, is how he put it. Most significantly, though, in God's sight, we are like Absalom because we're all under a curse, the curse of sin. In Absalom's case, though, his father's remarkable compassion, it can't save him in the end. All that Absalom has to show for himself at the end of the story is this big pillar that he puts up. Uh, it's in verse 18. We didn't read it. But he dies, and all he gets is a big stone to represent him. He's thrown into a pit, not into his family tomb, and all the men who so valiantly supported him, they simply turn around and go back to their normal lives. David had the perfect compassion for his son. At least that's how it seems from the text. I mean, how much more could he have loved his rebel son? Throughout most of the book of Samuel, we hardly ever see David's motivations, we hardly ever see his emotions, but they all come flooding out here. My son, my son, if only I had died instead of you. He had the perfect compassion, but even though he was the king of Israel, he didn't possess the power that he needed to save his lost child. This morning, though, we are all in a much better position than Absalom. Because we have a king and a father who not only has the perfect compassion for his children, but who has the power to manifest that compassion into each of our salvation. You know, he's, he's not left behind saying, my son, my son, I wish there was something that I could do. Because there is something he can do, and there is something that he did do. We each stand cursed before God as sinners. But as we heard earlier, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And we have a Savior who's taken that curse in our place. We have a Savior who's hung on the tree so that we don't have to. 
he's hung on the tree to remove the curse that is on each of us. Earlier, we sang together the words of Psalm 103, which is a psalm that's written by King David. And I imagine that his relationship with Absalom uh, was in the back or maybe even in the front of of his mind as he was writing uh, these words that we heard earlier. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I mean, talk about someone you're treating a child in their way that they don't deserve. I mean, you you have David and you think, this guy is nuts. He's getting all worked up about Absalom and think about how Absalom has treated him. Well, he does not treat Absalom as he deserves. And of course, uh, that's not the kind of compassion that we deserve from our father either. And he goes on. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So David longs for reconciliation with his son Absalom. God, our father, longs for reconciliation with each of us, his children. But the difference is that he's taken the extra step, right? David expresses it only as a wish. He says, Absalom, if only I could have died in your place. But the good news of the gospel is that God says, that is exactly the thing that I've done for you, my children. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you so much for Uh, not only the compassion that you show to each of us, but that you've made that compassion real in our lives by uh, doing something about it, so to speak. We thank you so much for the gift of your son who became a curse in our place. We thank you that we no longer bear that burden, but uh, can look forward to a reunion one day with you, our Heavenly Father. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like you to...